0: Seven years ago, a group of researchers with the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Colorado made a tremendous announcement. They had discovered where lager yeast originally came from. Now before this research, it had always confounded microbiologists as to the origins of lager yeast. The most widely accepted theory was that lager yeast genetically morphed from ale yeast in the caves of Bavaria sometime in the late 15th or early 16th century. And while there are millions of wild ale yeast strains floating around all over the world, in regards to lager yeast, there were were never any wild strains ever found until these guys at University of Wisconsin and the University of Colorado found some. The yeast was found living in galls, that is growths on beech trees. Somehow or another, sometime before or just after the year 1500, this yeast had made its way from the beech trees into the Bavarian beer caves and cellars where it fused with its very distant cousin. Geneticists say that ale and lager yeast are as closely related, genetically, as humans and chickens. And thus, lager beer was born. But the fascinating thing about this is where these galls that contained this proto-lager yeast were found. In the forest of Patagonia, in Argentina, more than 7,000 miles from Germany. And this yeast strain, or for that matter, any lager yeast strain, has never been found anywhere else in the world. Which begs the question, how in the (laughs) did it get from South America to Europe? It had to have been a hitchhiker on a European ship of discovery that was returning to Europe from the New World, but the Germans weren't doing any global exploration at that time. It must have been a long, strange trip. And it didn't end there. Welcome to episode four.
1: Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman.
0: Thank you, Jessica. And hello, everybody. And thanks for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I am Alan Tapman and I'll be your host, and I'm also the chief cat herder for the Brews Traveler Project. Today, we're not going too far down the road from our home studio here in Jeff City, Missouri. Just a couple of hours east to the Gateway of the West, St. Louis, Missouri, which is the home of one of the most vibrant craft beer scenes in the United States right now, with over 17 craft breweries and 11 brew pubs in the greater St. Louis metro area. And we're going to be talking with the owner and also the brewery manager of one of the most dynamic breweries in the city, Kevin Lemp and Martin Toft of Four Hands Brewing. Also, we're going to have a little history about the once biggest lager beer brewer in St. Louis, and it wasn't Anheuser-Busch. As always, we're going to have a talk with our friend Tony Rehagen, and he's going to tell us about some of the wild, weird, wacky, and whiskey-tango foxtrot types of beer that he has discovered during his travels around the country. All of that and more, so let's get on down the road and head east on I-70. And
1: now we head on down the road with the Bruised Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint, and who will we meet? Let's find out.
0: Granted, I have an affinity for St. Louis, not because I ever lived there or because of a lot of time spent there at all, but because it was the city for those of us who lived in Hannibal. Cardinals, baseball games, blues, hockey, big red Cardinal football until that monkey love It snake on a plane. Bill Bidwell took them to Arizona in 1987. I'm still mad at the NFL over that. If we went shopping, it was at the malls in St. Louis. We went there for concerts, shows, for long weekend getaways. If you were going to the city for anything, you were going to St. Louis. I suppose that after Milwaukee, St. Louis is probably most associated with beer, and particularly one beer, Budweiser. Almost all of the taverns where I grew up in Hannibal either had a Budweiser or a Bush sign hanging over their door. If not that, then they had a neon in the window. But there was another brand when I was a kid, Falstaff. And with good reason. Falstaff Brewing Corporation's production peaked in 1965 at 7,010,218 barrels, making it the fourth largest brewery in the country, just ahead of Carling. And following AB, Schlitz, and PAPS respectively. Between 1965 and 1975, Falstaff's sales dropped 70%, ranking it 11th in the nation. Now, that year, the brand was bought up by SP Company, which also owned PAPS, Pearl, Olympia, and Stroh's, and they closed the St. Louis Falstaff Brewery. In the 1980s, the brand name was bought by Paps, who continued to brew beer with the Falstaff label until 2004. And that year, they only produced a little over 1,400 barrels of the brand. The last Falstaff beer was sold in 2005. But in the years before Prohibition, the brewery was a powerhouse, one of the largest in the country, and they were strong enough that they were able to survive Prohibition. The brewery's founder, Adam Lemp, opened the doors of Limp Brewing in St. Louis in 1840, 36 years before the partnership of Eberhard Anheuser and Adolphus Busch. So, how does a company with such deep roots in the industry go from industry leader to industry competitor to minor entity to non-existent in the matter of a few decades? Adam Limp was a brewer from Hesse, Germany, and he arrived in Cincinnati in 1836. Two years later, in 1838, he moved to St. Louis and opened a grocery store, and he also brewed beer. Now, what kind of beer he brewed is a controversy. The Limp family always claimed that Adam Limp was the first brewer of lager beer in America at his grocery store in 1838, and that Lemp Brewing in 1840, was the first large-scale lager production facility. And while he did leave a brewing job in Germany when he came to America, it is possible that he brought lager yeast with him, but with the intervening years in Cincinnati before coming to St. Louis, he would have had to have been brewing beer in 1836 and 1837. Another brewer, John Wagner of Philadelphia, has also been cited as being the first man to brew lager beer in America in 1840. Both of these claims are dubious, and the main reason are because of the dates. Lager yeast is a delicate living organism, and it rarely lives a month if not being fed. Before 1840, most packet ships, which immigrants booked passage upon, took almost a month to cross the Atlantic. This gives Wagner the stronger claim if he had been able to keep yeast alive himself. And in regards to the Lemp family claim, time is what makes it so spurious. Let's say sailing from Germany to Philadelphia took three weeks in the 1830s, and that was a good rate of speed for that time. Then Lemp would have had to travel overland to Pittsburgh, which under the best conditions, traveling 12 hours a day at an average walking speed of three miles an hour, which was typical at the time, it would have taken about nine days to reach Pittsburgh. So that means it's already been a month since the yeast left Germany. Now in Pittsburgh, he would have gotten on a keelboat more than likely, To go to Cincinnati. Steamboats on the inland waterways were still kind of a novelty in the mid-1830s. And the trip from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati is 465 miles by the Ohio River, and that would have taken another five to ten days depending upon river conditions. So the likelihood of getting live yeast all the way from Hesse in Germany to Cincinnati in Ohio in 1836, very slim. Even John Wagner getting the yeast to Philadelphia at that time would have been iffy. Now, mind you, Adam Limp never made the claim himself, nor did John Wagner. These claims were made by later family members sometime in the late 1800s. There is a high probability, and many historians of beer believe this, that Limp and Wagner were brewing Kolsch-style ales, a clear top-fermented beer with a bright straw-yellow hue, similar to other beers brewed with mainly Pilsner malt. Kolsch is warm fermented at 60 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit and then conditioned by lagering it at cooler temperatures in cellars or caves. And this is probably where the confusion comes about. Not every beer that's stored and left in a cool environment is a lager. Kolsch, then as now, was a popular style of ale and was familiar to German immigrants whereas most Americans were still drinking darker British-style ales at the time. Now, the explosion of German-American lager breweries, that didn't really happen until after 1845, when clipper ships began to be able to make the transatlantic run in two weeks with favorable winds. In 1846, John Russell's Boston Brewery began producing lager beer, Joseph Dolger began lager beer brewing in New York City that same year. In 1847, John Huck and John Schneider began making this style of beer in Chicago. In Milwaukee, which would become one of the points of the German Triangle of Settlement, St. Louis and Cincinnati being the other points, several brewers were making ales. One Milwaukee brewer, by the name of Wagner coincidentally, not kin to the guy in Philadelphia, he wrote to his brother, a brewmaster in Bavaria, and asked him to send lager yeast in 1850. While waiting for the delivery, Wagner began to worry that the yeast would not survive the journey, which was almost another 900 miles inland from Philadelphia, and he offered it to Philip Best, another brewer in Milwaukee. Best agreed to take the yeast and pay for its shipment when it arrived. Now, the yeast appeared to be in good shape, so Best tasted it. They had a 16-barrel kettle and enough yeast for one batch, and it was still good. And they produced their lager beer, improving successive batches as they took yeast from each batch. Best Brewery was eventually purchased by Frederick Pabst, who built it into one of the largest breweries in the United States by the end of the 19th century. Also in Milwaukee, August Krug, Began brewing in 1849 and sold his brewery to a fellow named Joseph Schlitz in 1858. Valentin Blatz opened his brewery in 1851, followed by Frederick Miller in 1855. And now in St. Louis, through the 1840s and 1850s, Limp was the dominant brewer on the scene. Eberhard Anheuser opened his brewery in 1860, and his son in law, Adolphus Bush, came to work for him after the Civil War. And he became a full partner with Eberhard Anheuser in the year of the American Centennial. How Milwaukee and St. Louis became the lager beer capitals of America is a story of extreme coincidence. A number of factors had to happen in just a particular way for history to work out the way it did. First the flow of German entrepreneurs into America in the 1840s and 1850s. Second, the rise of clipper sailing ship technology in order to get lager yeast to America in a timely fashion. Third, German entrepreneurs moved to where real estate was affordable, and that was in the upper Midwest. Fourth, naturally occurring caves in both Milwaukee and St. Louis that could be used for lagering. Fifth, Abundant supplies of ice from Lake Michigan and the Mississippi River that would be cut and hauled into the caves and stored so the ability to lager beer was nearly year-round. And sixth, the emergence of rail transportation so these breweries could ship their beer regionally and then later on nationally. Now, why lager beer became so popular in the United States, that's another story for another time. When Prohibition hit in 1920, Lemp Brewing, Pabst, Anheuser-Busch, and Schlitz were the four largest breweries in the country. Lemp Brewing was purchased by the Greasy Dick Brothers in 1921, and yes, that was their name. And they renamed the business the Falstaff Brewing Corporation. Falstaff survived Prohibition by selling near beer, soft drinks, and cured hams. Afterward, Falstaff positioned itself to become a national power in the brewing scene. It was listed on the New York Stock Exchange as a publicly traded company, which was a real oddity for the German family-held breweries who tended to be very secretive about their processes. In 1936, Falstaff bought Krug Brewery in Omaha, making Falstaff the first beer to be brewed in two different states. The next year, they bought the National Brewery in New Orleans. In 1954, They bought Berghoff Brewing Company of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the Galveston-Houston Brewing Company of Galveston, Texas, and the Mitchell Brewing Company of El Paso, Texas, in 1956. For a brief period in the early 1960s, Falstaff edged past Pabst as the third largest brewing company in America, and then disaster struck. In 1965, the largest year of production that the brewery had ever seen, Falstaff purchased the Narragansett Brewing Company of Rhode Island, which brought on an antitrust lawsuit against the company. The case went before the Supreme Court, who found in favor of the corporation, but the damage was done. Investors sold their stock in advance of the court's decision, causing the value of the Falstaff Corporation to plummet, and as they say, the rest is history. I tell you this story in this episode for one reason and one reason only. The owner of Four Hands Brewing is Kevin Limp. So, you know what I'm going to ask him right at the very beginning. I just had to know. Was he a descendant of the Adam Limp? And now you're going to find out. Here's Kevin Limp and Martin Toft of Four Hands Brewing Company. So, here it is. This is the Brews Traveler interview of the week.
1: Now it's time for the interview of the week, and let's meet our guests. Whether they be a craft brewer or brewing advocate, they're sure to have a story you'll want to hear. And now, here's Alan and his guest.
0: Hi, everybody. We're in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're talking to one of the fastest-growing, most innovative craft breweries in this great city. Four Hands Brewing Company, and I'm here with owner Kevin Limp and brewery manager Martin Toft. Guys, good to see you.
2: Good to see you. Thanks for
0: having us. We really appreciate it. we're, we're going to get this interview kind of out of the way because I know you're, going, you're expecting a few hundred Cardinals fans to walk <laughs> through. That's right, event. yeah. All right, so um, first, uh, Kevin, I've got to ask because um, Limp, are you associated with the Falstaff family from the that came over here, the first lager brewers in this great city of lager brewing? Are you related to that family? No relation. I've had that question every
3: day since I've had a driver's license, <laughs> um, but no relation. But that really did inspire the name of Forehand's Brewing Company.
0: Okay. Okay, tell me about
3: that. So no relation to the old Lemp Dynasty, uh, which before Prohibition, they were the largest brewery in the country. They were larger than Anheuser-Busch. So we wanted to have a family named Brewing Company, it couldn't be Lemp. I don't think I would have named it that anyway. Um, but the four hands represents myself, my wife Megan, our son Rowan, and our son Fisher. So those are the four hands. And then everybody says, well, it should be eight hands. <laughs> and I say, no, it's one in. One Go in. team.
0: That's cool. Mm-hmm. Martin, uh, how did you come about getting Craft Brewery, and how did you come to four hands?
2: Um, so brewing for me kind of started as a hobby. I was a home brewer. Uh, I think a lot of brewers that you talk to probably were. Um, and it was just a hobby that got totally out of control. It got to the point where I was spending way too much money on equipment and way too much time making beer, and I started thinking to myself, how can I make a career out of this? So uh, I, I talked to a few local breweries uh, who were very accommodating, and they let me uh, come in and intern for them and kind of learn the ropes. Uh, and from there, I ended up studying brewing at the Siebel Institute in Chicago, and then the Domans Academy just outside of Munich in Germany. Oh, nice. Yeah, and then uh, once I finished up, came back in town, and was lucky enough to meet Kevin shortly thereafter. and. Been at forehands ever since. You okay. did a little stint at Schlafly, right? Nat, an
3: internship, and then him and Stephen Hale yeah. came in the tasting room, okay. and Stephen said, "Kevin, this is Martin. Martin, this is Kevin. I think you guys should know each other." <laughs> and then I don't know, a couple weeks later,
2: that
0: was that was it. You yeah. got a key. Yep. <laughs> so, so Kevin, how did you get into craft brewing?
3: I um, I developed a passion for craft beer in college. Um, and I was lucky enough right out of college to go work for Glaciers, which is a local wholesaler. Mm. I spent about a decade with Gallo Winery. Nice. Uh, so I, I managed Gallo Winery and our craft brands. Uh, went on Gallo payroll for a little bit, came back and managed uh, the state at Glaciers. And during that time, I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. I always had that spirit. Um, for a while, I thought it'd be in the restaurant industry, but I Quickly understood. I didn't know anything about owning or operating a restaurant. <laughs> after a decade working for Gallo Winery, I really understood brand building, um, and saw an opportunity in the local market and had a severe passion for beer. And you know, the craft beer really fit my personality also. And so, after a decade at Gallo, kind of jumped out of the airplane with a couple parachutes on and started the brewery. What year was that? It was two thousand and eleven. Um, I left corporate roots June of 11. We kind of had a soft opening 11, 11, 11. We really hit the market January of 2012. Nice. How big is the brewery here now? Uh, square footage, we have about 20,000 square feet here. Uh, we also have off-site storage, which is about another 20,000 square yep. feet. This year, we'll scratch 29,000 barrels. Okay. Uh, our first year, we were eleven twelve hundred barrels so, we're eighteen hundred barrels year one
0: this year we'll scratch twenty nine so you're a regional brewery now you're no longer a micro brewery. that's, that's right. right that's that's fantastic growth in just what nine years uh, no seven. seven yeah this is seven year years, seven for us seven years. yeah portfolio styles what tell me about your beers do you guys kind of like to run the gamut or do you specialize it? In... Tell, tell us about your adventures in brewing. I'd say we do a little bit of everything.
2: Um, we don't really want to be pigeonholed as you know the, the hoppy brewery or the stout brewery or you know whatever it might be. We, we do every kind of style you could ever think of. Um, so our, our main core portfolio, we've got everything from IPAs and brown ales, uh, our seasonal drivers of chocolate milk stout, we do a blonde ale with jasmine that's kind of on the more accessible side. Or we've got the, the ripple right here that you're enjoying, our Belgian wit. Um, and then we do a ton of barrel aging as well. So we've got big imperial stouts, you can kind of see them right back there through the window. Um, big imperial stouts, uh, barley wines, Belgians, sours, uh, whatever you can think of, we've probably at least tried to make
0: it. Let me ask you guys, you have ups and downs. Martin, how long have you been with Kevin here now?
2: Uh, so pretty much since we've been open, uh, going on seven years now. That's cool. Yep. Yeah.
0: So guys, What's the worst day that ever happened at Four Hands Brewing? Oh, man. going to tell your
3: worst first? <laughs> I mean, I would say for me, we had a challenging year. Um, and within that challenging year, we still grew our business 25%. Um, but at that time, we were, we were starting from scratch. Right? We had a 15-barrel brew house downstairs. We went from 15,000 barrels to 18,000 barrels during that year. We were all so decommissioning our fifteen barrel brew house, bringing in a thirty barrel four vessel brew house, building this four thousand square foot tasting room, um, bringing in a new boiler, plumbing in the new boiler to the old system, plumbing in the new boiler to the new system, decommissioning the old system. It was just a lot to manage. And we had some rough days, but we got through it. And we're sitting a lot better today because of that. Um, but two years ago was just, it was a lot to manage and handle. But yeah. like I said, we got
2: through it and we grew our business and we're making better and more efficient beer now. And so, yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, <laughs> I think my personal worst day was the day that our new brew house came online. So we'd been, uh, at that point, we were brewing 23 hours a day on the old system, totally manual 15-barrel system, so three full shifts for the guys, and we're installing this new production 30-barrel system. And we turned it on that first day, and we tried to get our first batch through, and we were excited and giddy, and we immediately stuck our louder, and that louder didn't run off for 14 hours. It was so stuck that we couldn't even drain it just to dump the mash and go home. (laughs) So there was a point where uh, myself and our head brewer, Andy, we're just sitting up on the brew deck, about to fall asleep at about three in the morning, just kicking ourselves, thinking, why the hell are we doing this? But we got through it, and uh, now, now that thing's humming. You know, We're cranking four <laughs> turns a day through it, no problem. But uh, that was probably the hardest day that I've ever had here. That does, which doesn't kill
0: you, makes you stronger. Yeah. You know, and I think that applies in this case. Yep, yeah. So, what's the best day ever? When did you, like, when did it dawn on you that it's like, yeah, this is why I'm doing this.
2: I would say for me, the best day ever was probably our first year that we were open. And we'd been, we were working really hard. There were just two of us in the brewery at that point. Uh, We'd been, you know, busting our butts trying to get beer out the door. And the day that we finally filled our first truck with beer to go out the door to our distributor, it was just the best feeling in the world that all that hard work had finally paid off. And we had a truckload of beer going out to a distributor which now looking back it's you know it's nothing in hindsight but at the time it, it was an exciting moment for us it's a milestone yeah right yeah. yes it is it's you're not sending out a pallet you're, you're filling s- a truck
0: yeah it, you're filling it's, a truck it you is know. an accomplishment yeah so what about you Kevin
3: it's a tough question because we have so many good days <clears throat> excuse me but I would say you know just looking back the best day was the day that I got the keys to this building And being able to bring in Megan, and at the time, Rowan was like six, and Fisher was three. And just looking around at all the blank space, which just had so much opportunity. And now, you fast forward seven years, and just seeing what we've been able to accomplish within that time, and now we don't have any blank space. (laughs) You know, we're walking sideways around this place. Um... But we have so many good days, and I think that our team is so strong and so dedicated that without the team, when we got those keys seven years ago, and fast forward to today, none of that would have ever happened. But being able to come in here with bright eyes and just full of ambition, and being able to really visualize what it one day was going to look like, and now sitting back and reminiscing, it's just kind of a, a neat feeling. Fantastic. I,
0: that's, you're, sounds like you guys are in a good place right now. Yeah, we're very happy. What are you seeing as some of the most challenging uh, elements of the industry right now? You know, f- from my
3: side, I would say, so we'll do 29,000 barrels this year. Of that, 83% of that beer is sold in the state of Missouri. Of that 83%, 90% of it is sold in St. Louis. Uh, We do well in Illinois. It's extremely difficult to sell beer outside of your home market, Uh, no matter how powerful your brand is. When we opened up, there were 1,400 breweries. Today, there's 6,500 breweries, and a lot of those breweries are making really fantastic beer. The liquid's good. So the further you travel from home, if you're looking to try and push any sort of volume, it's really just not there. Unless you're a New Belgium who's been in the game for decades, so our strategy is deep penetration, more accounts purchasing, being innovative and creative in our home market, and just building our brand here. And you know, through brand building, we'll enter some new markets. But really, it's just it's more of a marketing play. It's not to really increase that bottom line. Um, but selling beer outside of your home market is the quick answer. Right.
2: On the production side, I'd agree with Kevin. Managing those out of state markets is probably the most difficult thing on our plate right now. And hand in hand with that is maintaining quality because when you're shipping beer all over the country, you're selling a lot of it in your home market, but a lot of it's going across you know, three states, four states. Trying to maintain the quality of that product and make sure that you're putting out a good beer that people are gonna wanna drink consistently over time. I would say that's the the biggest challenge. You know, it takes it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of focus.
0: Where where is your distri- distribution besides St. Missouri and Illinois? I mean, really, that's
3: it. Yeah. Right. We do some pulse distribution, uh, is what we call it in Philadelphia, uh, Baltimore, DC, and Boston. And with pulse distribution, really, it's kind of like quarterly mm-hmm. deliveries yeah. of. Seasonal, barrel-age, more fun, sexy brands that yep. really it's just kind of coddling some of those fun off-premise right. or on-premise accounts to build the brand
0: and make a couple friends. You've made fans in those markets, and they're, yeah. they're expecting yeah, to absolutely. see your stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. What is your number one selling beer?
2: Our number one selling beer right now is Citywide. Um, Citywide's our American Pale Ale. Uh, it's a project that we only put out in 16-ounce cans, and we only sell it in the St. Louis metro
0: area. So it's not on draft?
2: It's not on draft, uh, outside of our tasting room. Um, there are a handful of accounts that they get a splash here and there, mm-hmm. but all of it's really going into cans. Uh, so for our biggest brand, uh, over about 20% of our overall production right now, that's... to be one brand that's only sold in one city in the country is, is pretty amazing. It's also a
3: philanthropic project. Yeah, okay. So, for every case of citywide we sell, we donate a dollar to a nonprofit. Uh, So, year, I guess, since its inception, which is April, it has been two years, we've given back over $100,000 to the local community with nonprofits. And now, last year, we created Citywide Pilsner. Uh, which we work with these kind of incubator hubs mm-hmm. and we've created a citywide scholarship so for every case of citywide pilsner we sell we donate a dollar um, in four-month increments to these incubator hubs create a scholarship it goes to an entrepreneur within their four walls
0: nice that's commendable so what's four hands got uh, coming down the road what's the newest thing that we can look forward to.
2: Um, well, we've got a ton of new beers coming up. Uh, we're kind of right in the middle of the spring summer seasonal swap. So we're I'm drinking a Contact High juice right now, which is a brand new uh, brand for us. Kind of a, a new take on an old favorite um, that I love. Uh, a bunch of tangerine juice in there, a bunch of tangerine zest. So just a big big citrus bomb. Uh, the other brand new one you've got right in front of you is uh, Ripple. It's our our Belgian wit. So that was uh, you know a category that we'd never really. Uh, I had tried to enter before. We'd never brewed a lot of Belgian wits, but this one's a, a new one for us, and it's been selling like crazy. This
0: is very refreshing. Mm-hmm. It's light. A lot of the Belgian wits, they'll be very heavy on the uh, the apricot and the banana esters. Yeah. And they'll be kind of cloying, sweet. <coughs> this finish is dry. It's exactly. Very refre- I, I commend you. It's a That's a nice that's a nice Belgian style. Well, thank
2: you. I'd say here at Forehands, we're pretty bad at brewing true to style. Uh, we usually <laughs> we brew what we like to drink. So, you know, we're not going to brew your traditional Belgian wit. We're going to brew the Belgian wit that we want. So,
0: that's what we ended up
2: with. Charlie Pepesian would be proud. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: what do we got here? This so, is another new project. This is
3: another new project that we're working on. We actually just uh, did an industry release last night. So, we're developing a line extension to Forehands Brewing Company. 1220 Artisan Spirits. We're releasing gin out of the gates. So Origin is our year-round gin. This is the packaging behind it. Uh, We'll look at some seasonal gin, some Amaro. Um, 1220 will really be a botanical-inspired distillery. So everything will be seasonal and pretty local. And we're going to look at spirits a lot like we look at beer. So we're really excited about this. We, um, and I think a lot of it comes from when we opened up, there were twelve, fourteen hundred 1,400 breweries. Today, yeah. there's 6,500 breweries. It, the market's just getting tighter and tighter. How can we build a brand that doesn't compete with our existing brand, rather complements our existing brand? We have a, a pretty firm infrastructure, so 1220 is really borrowing a lot of hard work that we've done over the last seven years now, six Mm -hmm. and a half years, with the brewery. We're really excited about it. So Origin will be launching here shortly, year-round gin. In collaboration with this, we will do our own tonic water um, with a goal of putting
0: gin and tonic in a can later this year. Well, that's to be commended. As far as business savvy goes, that's forward thinking. really it is. One more thing. The lightning round, guys. <laughs> Let's hear it. All right.
2: I thought that was the lightning round music for I a second too. there. <laughs> <really> great timing. <laughs> the yeah.
0: Car. All right. The light. The lightning round. The lightning round for Kevin and Martin here at Four Hands Brewing in St. Louis. Famous number fours in sports. Oh. All right. Adam Vinatieri, kicker for the New England Patriots and Indianapolis Colts, or Chris Bosh, NBA star with the Miami Heat? Uh, yachty. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only four
2: we know around here.
0: Yeah. All right. Number two, Ralph Kiner, Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder, or Duke Snyder, Brooklyn Dodgers outfielder?
2: You're asking the wrong
0: guys. Yachty. Yeah, Yadi. Yachty. <laughs> <laughs> thought this might happen. <laughs> World Series MVP, Paul Molitor, or or uh, Stanley Cup playoff MVP, Bobby Orr? I'm to say Bobby Orr. There you go. All right. St. Louis Cardinals, Chicago Cubs second baseman, Rogers Hornsby, or Yankees Hall of Famer Lou Gehrig, who died of the famous disease that we all now know. It's got to be Lou Gehrig. I right? agree with yeah. you on that. And now number five and the final question, eight-time gold glove winner Yadier Molina or two-time World Series champion Yadier Molina? We know this one. I think it's Yadier Molina. <laughs> it's right, Moore. Hey, hey, Kevin Limp, Martin Toft. Hey, guys, thanks so much for having us. And Thank we really you. appreciate you coming on the Bruise Traveler. No, thanks for coming here. It's our pleasure. All right, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yep. And that's a wrap. Again, a big thank you to Kevin and Martin for hosting us. Had lunch there. Very good. They've got a nice little food menu. You can see that at their website. Four Hands Brewing Company is located at 1220 South 8th Street in St. Louis, Missouri. Their tasting room is open Monday through Thursday from 12 p.m. till 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday, 12 p.m. to 12 a.m. Sunday, 12 p.m. to 9 p.m. And you can check out everything that they've got going on at their website. That's four, as in the number four, fourhandsbrewery.com. Hey,
4: ha, da 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 Ha, hey. Carde on scale buco. What's the rumpus?
1: Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing?
0: Got Tony Rehagen on the line. or roving journalist how you doing tony doing well how are you doing great great uh, where are you headed off to
5: uh tomorrow i'm heading out for jekyll island georgia to do a little a little reporting out there uh I'm, I, I get to take the missus with me so it's it's gonna nice. be really hard
0: nice so uh what's the story
5: uh, there are a couple stories I, i'm doing some stuff for the uh, the jekyll island authority which is one of their uh which is kind of their, t- their tourism board but uh it's a haunted Jekyll. I get to kind of check out some of the older older clubs and uh, older buildings on the island, uh, hmm. back from its pre, pre-tourism days.
0: Right. What You lived in Georgia for a while.
5: I did. I lived in Atlanta for five years. I okay. moved up here between 2011 and 2016.
0: I've never been to Jekyll Island, but I am suppose you're probably pretty familiar with the geography down that way.
5: It is. It's it's uh, it's one of the barrier islands, uh, kind of over towards St. Simons, uh, real close to South Carolina. Um, right. And you just, it is just beautiful. They've they've really done a nice job of keeping it up and kind of controlling the development. It, there there are tourists there, but they they still have a, uh, a provision that it can only be like eight, it still has to be like sixty to seventy percent natural, or even right. maybe even eighty without the development. So it's it's they maintained the integrity of the place. It's so
0: they ha- they haven't gone the way that Myrtle Beach has.
5: No, no, not at all.
0: So. What do you got for us this week? What interesting uh, little story have you got?
5: Well what's interesting is like you, you know I, I drive around and, and fly around for, uh, for work doing stories everywhere and I always try to grab a different beer uh, or four or five wherever I go. Um, and you just you see some of the weirdest stuff. And I was at a, a wedding in, in Denver or just outside of Denver it was in Western Colorado. Um, and I like Stouts and sometimes stouts get you into trouble because people have really gone kind of crazy with the stout flavors. And I tried this. I'm not gonna out the brewer, but it was a maple syrup porter, and it was just like I was. I finally had to like look at myself and be like, "What are you doing? And why so are I, you drink- like, Yeah. Why? Why are you drinking? Why so did actually that it out? <laughs> getting I, I ready.
0: That, to, let me guess. You were getting ready to go into a diabetic coma.
5: Yeah. Right. No. I was just like, no, nah, man. I'm in Colorado. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go smoke some. Of <laughs> but uh, uh. But yeah. So it got kind of got me thinking. I just wondered. You know breweries are coming out there's so many different breweries and there there's so many uh so many different flavors that are out there I, I wanted to kind of take a survey to kind of see i mean you know as people compete with each other they just go crazier and crazier and there's some really whacked out uh beer available out there if you find if you can find it
0: so what did you so, find
5: Yeah, I, I i picked out six to kind of highlight here and number one is the one that I don't, I'm not even sure. I'll probably take a sip of it. I'm not sure, but it should be interesting. It's Mamma Mia Pizza Beer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a margarita pizza in a bottle. And it's, it's out of Canton, Illinois, and, and Tom and Athena Seifert, they make it in their home, their little home brewery and ship it out. It's available via the web. It's on. It's, they have a website and everything. And they basically said it all started back in Labor Day of 2006. They've been doing this for a while, but it's just not going to hit the web. Uh, it all started with a surplus of tomatoes, a bag of garlic and an idea that started, you know, when they started planting their garden herbs and basically it's a beer that tastes of garlic, basil and heavy on the tomato notes.
0: Wow. That's gotta be horrible.
5: I can't, I can't (laughs) even imagine how that's good, right? I can't, I can't even imagine. No,
0: I I can't. I can't even fathom what that would be like. (laughs) (laughs) What's next?
5: Well, you know I, I talked about the stouts and what's interesting is I, I still and even though it's summertime like I still find myself drinking these stouts like I can't get off of it but what you what I find myself doing is like I'll drink I'll drink lighter beers lighter color beers um, earlier then eat eat and then I'll want a dessert and so like some of some of these stouts that when they go kind of super sweet with it will really work nicely as a dessert you could also go with a nice sour if you're not if you don't want to like weigh yourself down um, and to, I, you know I've tried I, I recently had a uh, Evil, Evil Twins Imperial Biscotti Donut Break, where it actually, they used donuts in the brewing of it.
0: Bis- um, wait, it, stop now. Evil Twins yeah. Biscotti Donut. Stop. Imperial
5: Biscotti Donut Break. Yep. <laughs> it's a stout. It's basically like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's almonds and coffee, which is like the original Biscotti Break, which is delicious. And they, they topped it off with like a, a bunch of donuts. They broke up pieces of donut and threw it in, and they, they brewed it with the donuts. And it's not, it's not Disgustingly sweet, like it, it has a nice little sweetness at the end of it, but you still get a lot of the almond in the coffee, um, and it's eleven point five percent, so it, it that doesn't hurt, you no. But it's it's interesting, but it, it's been it's been topped by this beer I found out of Fort Worth, Texas, um, the Collective Brewing Project, who also, like asterisk, used to used to brew a ramen flavored beer, which I didn't even <laughs> want to look up. Came came up with peep this collab and they, it was a collaboration with a local bar peep being the operative word even though it's after easter it's a peeps flavored beer
0: peeps as like those lo- those marshmallow those chick things
5: yep the marshmallow chick. are yeah. you
0: football kidding nope, me
5: serious it's purple in color and they even just just to go all out they, they they put a splash of edible glitter in it so it's purple glitter and it's a sour ale brewed with peeps vanilla and butterfly pea flower, which is like a, like an herbal tea, like they use at Starbucks. Uh, and it's, yeah, I, I can't even imagine, but I mean, at least the, the idea that it's a sour makes you think it's a little bit lighter. Like it's not like a, a peep in a blunder, but you know, you might have some around for next Easter, I guess.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah.
4: Okay. The next
5: one. Yeah. The next one, the next one is one of my favorites. Cause I, I love hot stuff and I love stouts and I, I, this one is a uh, by Rogue.
0: Uh, yeah, I know Rogue. Uh, yeah.
5: Yeah, Rogue. Yeah, they have, they have beers right here. They have good Rogue. beers, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Their they're, they're black, black IPA is one of my favorites, yeah.
5: Absolutely. No, they got, I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. And the uh, the dead guys, they uh, they do the dead guy ale, which is yeah. really delicious. This one is the Sriracha Hot Stout. Um, it's basically the cocoa and that chili, the chili sauce that you put on, on you know, your eggs or whatever you put it on, Sriracha. Um, it's it's made by the original chili sauce and sun ripened, uh, rogue farm ingredients, and so it's like super. It's supposed to have a super smolder at the end, um, which is actually I, I had a when we were in. A, you mentioned that uh, you were you were going to Minnesota. Um, when I was up there at St. Paul in January, I had this Modus Mexican dark chocolate stout uh, that they call Ritual Night. And they, the bartender warned me, he's like, this is spicy. Like, I've, dude, I've had pepper beers. It, you know, it tastes like pepper, but it's never spicy. He's like, no, this has a smolder. He used the word smolder. <laughs> and I drank it, and it, it did. I, I, He almost had, like, a, I have a glass of water after it, and it was delicious. But it was like that Mexican chocolate. It's mole. So I say, yeah, like mole yeah, sauce. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And kind of along those lines, I also found uh, two Henry's. Um... Brewery uh, from Plant City, Florida has a roasted jalapeno and blueberry yeah. uh, porter, which I, I imagine would be pretty good. But it, uh, it, it's just they kind of complement each other with that sweetness and that heat, um, in a, in a brown porter. It's,
0: so. it's it's interesting that you bring up the, these uh, peppered beers because in this week's uh, this week's or excuse me, next episode I'm going to be talking to uh, Nick out at Dark Sky Brewing Company in Flagstaff, Arizona. And they experiment with a lot of chili, okay. of chilies and habaneros and jalapenos, okay. and I mean they do they 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 do a lot of experimentation, and uh, so yeah, I, I had some while I was out there. Lee really, I like a little bit of chili, like Santa Fe's Adobe Igloo, their winter their mm-hmm. winter a- a- ale, where they used cocoa nibs and a little bit of of uh, New Mexican chili. I like a little bit, but when it like you said, when it starts to burn the tongue and I need a glass of ice water to chase down my beer, <laughs> you're out, you're out, in my opinion, you're out of the beer care category now and you're going into something completely different. But anyway, so, sure. So, it got any more for us?
5: Yeah, the last one takes the cake. It, it's it balls out the best one. In fact, they, they market it as the ballsiest canned beer in the world. And we were, we were talking about stouts, and I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with them. Uh, but, you know, there, there are different kinds of stouts. There are, you know, the dry Irish stout. There's coffee stout. Uh, and the, the other type of, of normal stout is the oyster stout, right? Right. Um, That you don't find everywhere when you can't find it. And that's the oyster, you know, out, out uh, that you find in the sea. Well, nice. if you go to Denver and you go to uh, Winco. Oh, I know,
0: I know where or, you're going. I know where you're yep, going. It's
5: a oh. Rocky Mountain oyster oh,
0: stout. What the?
5: Farmhouse Ale. It's exactly what it says. It's. Um, here's the the description a meaty foreign style stout meaty Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout is made with Colorado based malts roasted barley, 7 specialty malts Styrian Goldings hops and 25 pounds of freshly sliced and roasted bull testicles
0: I, uh, well there's probably somebody listening who does it's not from where we're from which is rural Missouri or Missouri <laughs> as you ever you right. might say but uh, that didn't know what Rocky Mountain oysters are And there you go folks they are yeah. actual beef testicles
5: yep. it, it started as an April Fool's joke they put out a video and people were like, you know what that might actually work and <laughs> they, did it, they, 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 they put it in cans now uh, 7.5 ABV so you know you start forgetting what you're drinking. Um, but yeah, yeah, Rocky Moist Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout. Boo ha They should serve that at Olean uh, during the
0: Testicle Festival. They time. should. Olean, Missouri, folks, the home of the <laughs> annual Testicle Festival. Yeah, yeah you can call up the Olean Chamber Commerce and tell you the dates. Tony Rehagen <laughs> bringing us the wild, the wacky, and the what the <laughs> of beer. <laughs> They're gonna be, they're gonna be some uh, bleeps in this one. Okay, Tony, thanks so much. I appreciate you, you, you I appreciate your uh, research on this. Anything uh, in the line of duty? Hey, and anybody out there that's listening, if you uh, know of a very weird beer that we ought to know about, uh, please send us a little message in the Facebook on the Facebook page. Uh, we appreciate hearing from you. Thanks again, Tony, and we'll talk to you. Next week, have fun in Jekyll Island. We'll do. Thanks, Alan. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Here's Alan with the RV rookie tips for travelers as you head down the road.
0: Well, finally, I've got enough time at the end of the show to throw this out there for you folks. It's the first installment of the RV Rookie, and today's episode is titled Reusable Plastic. It's your friend. Uh, Right now, of course, there's a big push against using throwaway plastic items mainly because a lot of it's not recyclable and that a lot of people take and they just throw it into the rubbish bin where it winds up in the landfill and it'll be there two million years from now when the alien archaeologists show up and try to figure out why we kept throwing this stuff away. Watch the movie WALL-E as if it were a documentary. Oh wait, Our first big trip in the RV back in April, we went for two weeks, went to West Texas, Southern New Mexico, Arizona, then back through Northern New Mexico, then over to the Spanish, over the Spanish peaks to Colorado before driving as fast as we could across Kansas to get home. Nothing against Kansas, Uh, we need corn and wheat and you guys are great at growing it. It just gets a little boring looking at cornfields. So anyway, I stocked up the pantry for the trip. We took Cody, he's our rough coated Labradoodle, of course why else would you get an rv except to have your fur buddies so you can go along with you on trips so we end up preparing our own meals rather than eat in restaurants we don't like to leave cody alone in the rv for an hour or more it's just not fair for him besides one of the things i really enjoy is cooking and it's always fun to plan meals and i like stopping in the supermarket that you don't know in some town where you maybe never been before and it's always kind of an adventure okay where in this store do they keep the uh spices and whatever you're looking for it always takes you a little longer yeah give yourself twice as much time when you go into a new supermarket anyway there are always some staples that you need so i bought them from home including red wine vinegar and olive oil along with all of these spices and my coffee and merrily's tea and stowed them in the cabinets above the range along with my indestructible metal french press french press coffee pot one thing i did not do was I did not transfer the oil and vinegar into reusable containers out of their glass bottles. And that's part of the story. So we left, we left home around two in the morning. Um, uh, it was going to be 11 hours, uh, by Google maps to our first stop. Always add at least an extra half hour for every five that you drive. So we'd be there 12, 13 hours. So that had put us there, you know, sometime around three in the afternoon, we hoped. And, um, Anyway, got there, and so we're going through Joplin, Missouri at about 5 a.m. in the morning, and we're needing to take on diesel. So I took the main exit there at Joplin and onto the main north-south drag, and I took a left turn into a convenience store, gas station, right? And I underestimated the depth and the pitch of the gutter of the street at the drive onto the C-stores lot, and it pitched the RV to the left... And then it pitched it back to the right, and then to the left again, and the cabinets above the range flew open, and everything came flying out. Scared the bejesus out of poor Cody. Luckily, neither of the bottles, the vinegar or the olive oil, shattered, but the caps broke. And so I had olive oil and vinegar and, you know, that was easy enough to clean up. But the disaster happened when the French press coffee pot dropped on the glass-topped induction stovetop and shattered it into at least a few hundred pieces. I cleaned up everything. Marilee nearly slept through the whole ordeal. She was in the on the bed in the back, only waking up long enough to ask if I were okay. Um, Yeah, I'm fine. She goes, okay, well, I'm going back to bed. And so she did while I cleaned the mess up. So... Your RV rookie lessons, kids, for this week. One, slow down when driving over a gutter. 2 rebottle or repackage anything in glass into reusable, tight-fitting plastic containers. And three, don't put your indestructible heavy metal French press coffee pot in the cabinet above your glass stovetops. Now, because of my idiocy, you'll never have an excuse if that were to happen to you truthfully i'm not a complete idiot some parts are missing
1: you've been listening to the Bruised traveler follow us on facebook twitter and instagram or check out our blog on website thebruisetraveler.com cheers
0: And cheers to everybody out there listening. Thanks for finding us, guys. Uh, Your next episode's going to be Monday, June 25th. It'll be dropping, and it's a visit with Nick Irvine out at Dark Sky Brewing in Flagstaff, Arizona. On behalf of everyone here at the Brews Traveler team, thank you for listening. Please tell your friends about us. And if you really want to show us some love, give us a great five-star hug and a review over on iTunes. Apple Podcast, that is, it would be greatly appreciated. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Bruise Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at the Bruise Trav LR. You can find all the links on our website, thebruestraveler.com. The soundtrack for the Bruised Travelers from our good friends at Gaelic Storm. A big thanks to them for supporting the podcast. Their new album, Go Climb a Tree, is available at their website. I've been saying go find a tree for the last two shows. Sorry about that, guys. That's over at GaelicStorm.com. Also check out their tour schedule while you're there and see if they're coming to a town near you. You can find their music on iTunes and probably any place else where you get your music. That's GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation is provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I'm going to be on the road next week. Myself and the Brews Traveler team videographer, Tom Baker of Bravo Creative. We're going to be in Duluth, Minnesota this weekend at Canal Park Brewing on Saturday night, June 23rd. And at Bent Paddle Brewing on Sunday afternoon, June 24th. If you want to know what times we're going to be there, just send us a message over on Facebook. And we'll tell you about when we expect to be pulling in. So until next time, please remember, drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, and take care of the earth. It's everything that we've got. I'm on down the road, and if I don't run into you at your favorite tap room or pub, I'll see you right here on the podcast. And merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. I'll see you guys so long for just a while.
4: a little story about someone that you know he was a right famous fella by the name of Russell Crow. I was working at a pub, he was smoking at the bar that's a crime is all you know in California So I sidled up the rail right to where he stood, I said I'm sorry Mr. Crow, as nicely as I could you'll have to put that out now, I'll throw it on the floor if you don't I'll kick you out and show you Well, he squared right up to me Somewhat in surprise Then he narrowed up his gaze Shot me daggers with his eyes If you think you're man enough Go ahead, he said I was scared for my life So I docked him in the head The closest I've come to ever up dead was the night that I punched Russell Crowe, the gladiator in the head. He lifted up his hands, put them to his nose. Blood was running through his fingers, dripping on his clothes. His bodyguards ran up, get him, shot a crow! Run, cry, run, and don't stop Until you get to Mexico The closest I've come To ending up dead Was the night That I punched Russell Crowe The gladiator in the head The closest I've come Ending of death Was the night that I punched Russell Crowe The gladiator in the head
0: of a good time. I don't really know what else is worth having. Martha Gellhorn, author, war correspondent, journalist. Born November 8, 1908, St. Louis, Missouri. Died February 15, 1998, London, England.